Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. By the way, I, at Christmas time we have a really good pamphlet. Well, I say pamphlet, it's a booklet. I'm going to leave them right at the corner. Hopefully I'll remember to remind you. But again, if you're interested in uh, um, handing those out, maybe you have someone that you'd really like to give a booklet to. I think it's 20-some pages. It's very clear. The uh, name of it is, Why on Earth Did Jesus Come? It's a great Christmas. So again, avail yourself of those after the service if you're interested. Today we're going to look at a very familiar passage. It's the source of carols, it's the source of cards and gifts and books and Christmas pageants. And the only thing is, sometimes we, we are so overwhelmed with the trappings of Christmas, we really miss the truth of Christmas. So we really want to focus in on the, on the truths there's been a tendency over 2,000 years to add trappings. And we throw the baby out with the bathwater or actually throw the baby underneath the bed and pile a bunch of coats on him. And the baby is suffocating because we are enjoying too many of the trappings. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But I think sometimes that's true. If you've been all stressed out to just get the presents done, you've actually just experienced what I just talked about, right? It's all about the Lord. It's really all about the Lord. And unfortunately, we go after too much of what the world says it's all about. So let's look at the truth, the truth of Christmas. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We'll read that in a moment, but I want to give you some background before we do. 2,000 years ago, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, entered human society as a little baby. The Creator put on humanity. And I say, praise God. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Lord of Heaven came to live on earth. It was an ordinary night, no fanfare to announce His coming birth, no celebration to prepare for His arrival, a night like any other, but the baby was not like any other baby. This child was the Lord Jesus Christ. God and man fused together in an indivisible oneness. This birth was so monumental that it became the climax of history. And really, all of history before his birth was B.C., before Christ, and all history after was after Christ, right? Starting approximate B.C. zero. Everything focuses on him. Now again, I know, I understand, we now go, and now this is how it's referred to, before common era and after common era, but it wasn't like that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He was the center point. He is the focal point. By the way, most people don't get that. They will. Every knee will bow. Before we read Luke chapter 2, Let's just summarize what happened in actually Luke chapter 1. Okay, Uh, just a couple of the major, because we need to get the context. Remember, when you study the Bible, what's most important? Context, context, and context. 
Starting in verse 26, in the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, an angel came by the name of Gabriel to a city of Nazareth in Galilee. Then to a virgin named Mary. By the way, Mary was probably only 13 or 14 or 15 years old. You've got to remember, she was a very young girl. Joe, or Joseph, probably only about 15. They got married early back then. I am not advocating that at the moment, but <laughs> she was betrothed or literally promised, engaged to a young man whose name was Joseph, who was a descendant of David. That's critical. That is absolutely critical, a descendant of David. Gabriel said, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Of course, she was greatly troubled at the statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting this might be. By the way, no one had seen an angel in literally 400 years. All of a sudden, she's seen one. Do you think you'd be scared? <laughs> Until this angel appeared to Zacharias and Elizabeth, the angel said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I always love in Scripture how God makes sure that his people, you don't have to be afraid. Be at peace. Be at peace. Verse 31, you will conceive in your womb, again, Luke 1, 31, and bring forth a son and you shall name him Jesus. Matthew one twenty one tells us that the reason to name him Jesus, which means Savior, was because he will save his people from their sins. Now again, the Jewish people were not looking for a Savior to save them from their sin. They were looking for a king that would release them from the bondage that they were in as far as the Roman government. Because again, as they were going out and about, they were as Roman soldiers. Rome was occupying Jerusalem. They were looking for a a uh, king conqueror, but no, Gabriel said, no, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you're in Luke 1, look at verse 32. Uh, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will, be, will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is absolutely critical to remember that this is the Son of God, the Son of Man. This is the one who is going to be David's heir. This is the one that's going to be reigning and ruling on the throne of David. So whereas Matthew emphasizes that he will save his people from their sins, this passage emphasizes but he's going to be the, the, the coming ruler. In the first coming, he accomplished... Uh, dying for our sins. In the second coming, <coughs> he's going to sit on David's throne. Verse 34, Mary said to Gabriel, how can this be since I do not know a man? I'm a virgin. I mean, that's a problem in her eyes. But look at verse 35. Again, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. I mean, we read this, you know, we read this and it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, and I, I got it, I understand this. Can you imagine how monumental God and human flesh? See, it's going to be a miraculous conception. God is going to plant life into you, Mary, without a man. I like how Michael Horton uh, comments. He says, quote, it is, it is better to speak of a virginal conception than a virgin birth, though I will refer to the virgin birth because we're talking about the actual birth. There was, after all, nothing supernatural about Christ's birth. 
He was born in an ordinary way, no differently than any, any other healthy child. But the conception was, a super, it was supernatural when God became a zygote in the uterus of a Jewish virgin. Then he reminds her, or tells her, that even Elizabeth, who had grown old, is in six months of pregnancy. Although she was barren and she has a child, her conception was of a normal way you get how you conceive. But then he highlights the whole thing in verse 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Virgin birth, not impossible. Take away the sins of the world, not impossible. Sit on David's throne, not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? I trust you do. Nothing is impossible with God. Now let me give you one other addendum. Matthew 1, you don't have to turn there, but just let me summarize it this way. When Gabriel comes to Joseph, and he's the one betrothed to Mary, by the way, betrothal meant a binding promise. The Jews looked at it like marriage, though they had not consummated the marriage. He told, he said, you know, don't be afraid, and, you know, and marry her, and actually it says that he took her to be his wife. So by the time you get to Luke chapter 2, though he had never slept with her, he had taken her as his wife. You're going to see something kind of odd because he's going to, uh, Luke's going to refer to him as betrothed, and we'll refer back to this, but you get the context. And now Mary's in her ninth month of pregnancy, ready to give birth. And she's going to have to take a 70 to 80 mile trip on a donkey. Now think about this, ladies, if you've ever had a child. Would that be something that you'd want to do? <laughs> okay. So we're going to look at uh, the... We're going to look at Luke 2, the, the Christmas story, the birth of Messiah, from three vantage points. First of all, we're going to see the world setting. Then we're going to see the national setting. Then we're going to see the personal setting. We're just going to... And, and again, what we want to do is we want to, we, 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 we want to exalt our Lord. We want to exalt the plan and get rid of the trappings. Periodically, I'll say, you know, that really wasn't... Like, you know, he was born in the stable. You don't see that. Uh, the angels sang. You don't see that. They said they said. Things like that. You know, we have all these trappings. We kind of think of it. By the way, he didn't have like a halo around his head when he came out. Um, I, didn't, I didn't hear that and I don't want to hear it. Let me just go on. Let me read the text. Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Crinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone in his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Let's break this down. Again, the world setting, the national setting, the personal setting of Christ's birth. First of all, the world setting, it came to pass in those days. In those days. What days? What was the timing? The days of Herod. When he was reigning as the Indian uh, Edomite uh, vassal king, 
for Rome, basically. I mean, he was there, but it was in those days. Remember, he's the one that's going to try to kill Christ. In the day of the hated Roman occupation. That's the day. Rome conquered. Rome was there. By the way, they hated Rome. They were oppressive. They were Gentiles. Not only that, unclean Gentiles who were idolatrous. It was in those days that it came. In the days when Gabriel came to Elizabeth in Zacharias. The days when John the Baptist was going to be born. That's the day that we're talking. In those days, by the way, we do not know exactly when Christ was born. And we won't even get into why it was, you know, why we celebrate the 25th. It's just, there again, there's a lot that's not known. We bring a lot of trappings in. And uh, I really should leave the trappings out if we want to exalt the king. It's not wrong. I mean, I say out. You know, how many of you have a Christmas tree? We have one of the nicest Christmas trees this year we've ever had. <laughs> but it's not, that's not what really is about Christmas, right? Just kind of lights. But how about the decree? That a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. A decree went out that the whole world should be registered. Now again, we see this guy, his title, Caesar. That's how he's known in the New Testament. Actually, his birth name was Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius. I like Caesar Augustus better, I guess, if you're going to have a name. That's actually his title. Caesar means emperor, by the way. Emperor. It's like the title of a king or a pharaoh. You know, we give King James or pharaoh, whatever. But Augustus means revered one, honored one, majestic one. This is important because it doesn't only date it, but it also tells us something about who is reigning in the world of the known Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. His title was given to him uh, some 20 plus years earlier by the Roman Senate. He's a, he actually was adopted by Julius Caesar. I mean, he was a very, very important man. He was called the pre, Princeps. In other words, the first citizen. He was the, the quintessential Roman. You know, you hear about a lot of Roman emperors. He was, the, he was the, the best of the best of the Roman Empire. He the most powerful. Caesar Augustus. That's when Christ was born, when Caesar Augustus was on his throne. One wrote this, His ascension to the throne marked the beginning of the Roman Empire. He restored unity and orderly government after a long period of destructive civil wars, and he also ushered in what they call the Pax Romana. In other words, the time when Rome had peace and prosperity. So he was a very, very powerful king. Excuse me, Emperor Caesar, that's what we really want to... John MacArthur says he is arguably the most, most significant person in Roman history, end quote. Okay, so you get the point who Caesar Augustus is. The best of the best, the most powerful, the most of all time. That's the one that's reigning in Rome. Look at his rule in all the world. By the way, that's not the, the globe, but all the known civilized Roman world. That's what he's referring to there. He ruled the Roman Empire for 45 years, from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D. Huge swath, much of what we see, oh, obviously in the whole beginning of the story was, you know, he was the ruler. They say he was brilliant, decisive, bold. He was a fearsome 
uh, ruler and a gifted leader. He wasn't afraid to take a risk when necessary. He had immense wealth, and therefore he was respected, uh, highly respected by those he commanded. And he controlled the army. Therefore, you put all that together, his rule was absolute. That's the point. He was revered and worshipped literally, now this is dangerous, as a god. He was actually spoken of as, quote, the savior of the world, end quote. Now think about that. When you will, you will call him named Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And there's some guy over here saying he's the savior of the world. There's going to be a conflict, by the way. By the way, in Christianity, there's always a conflict between Christianity and the world. Isn't that true? And I think sometimes we look around right now and we, we uh, are almost surprised. There's a conflict between Christianity and America and the world. There's always has been. There always will be. Until the king, the prince of peace, comes back. This pagan king who was the false savior of the world, who knew nothing of the coming birth of the true savior of the world, was used by God to orchestrate his plan. And God is God and Caesar is not. By the way, that's why um, you know, you've heard uh, what got the Christians in, in uh, so much trouble was, and it started... Uh, with him, I believe it actually started with him, is all you had to do was once a year, this, the, the citizens of Rome, any part of the Roman Empire, had to give an incense and say, Kaiser ho curios, uh, Caesar is Lord. That's all they had to say. By the way, the Rome, Romans were really easygoing people in one sense. They would conquer you, and they didn't try to get you to be like them. They just said, you know, you can keep your own uh, you know, uh, traditions, you can keep your own gods, you can, you can have your own idols, you can have, we're not, we just want allegiance to Rome. And therefore, once a year, we, all we want you to do is just go, I think it was to their temple, and you just pick a little incense and just say, Caesar is Lord. And then you can go home. You can go home, worship whoever you want, but we just want to make sure that you're loyal, you're loyal to Rome. Well, the Christians can do that. The first creed of Christians was what? Christ is Lord. And it was for that that they were killed. They were in the Colosseums with the gladiators, with the beasts. They were unwilling to capitulate just that little bit of incense, Caesar is Lord, because that would have been, they would have been uh, going against their, their true king. So that was his rule. And then finally his subjects, that they should be registered. We find in history that a census was used to identify his subjects. By the way, the census, the purpose of the census was twofold. One was to get soldiers, but we know that that was not the purpose here because Jews were not allowed to be in the army, as far as from Rome's point of view. So it, wasn't, it was really for taxes. That's why the, they were called to be registered for tax purposes. Boy, isn't it true that government always wants your taxes? <laughs> you know... Verse 2, the census first took place while Crinius was governing Syria. Now, Roman history tells us that every 14-year interval, that, that, this, uh, that there was a census every 14 years. The first one would therefore have been about 8 B.C. The second one, we do know, was 6 A.D., which was you know, 8, 8, BC, 8 B.C. to 6 A.D. is 14 years. So this, the, the decree went out at 8 B.C., 
But we know that Jesus was not born. The very earliest he would have been born was 6 B.C. You might say, well, why? What, what took the two years? Well, there's a few probably, I mean, obvious reasons. First of all, just because somebody says something in Rome, you know, we have the, the decree out, doesn't mean that it gets to the entire world. They didn't have, by the way, they didn't have texting back then. Couldn't tweet it. By the way, you got to get... So part of it was communication problem. It was slow. But I think there was also not a communication problem. Not only that, but there was a compliance problem. Jews were always trying to res, you know, have insurrection and, and always stubborn, I guess you'd say. And most agree that it was probably the compliance of the Jews, that they were stalling, and, and that's why it wasn't to the last moment that Mary and Joseph had to then finally go the 70, 80 miles to get registered. Because otherwise it wouldn't have made sense. I mean, would you take a nine-month pregnant woman on a 70-mile journey? But apparently, they were holding back, holding back. I'm talking to Jews. They were stubborn. And then finally, it had to be done. And they took her. Again, think about that ride. 70, 80 miles, walking, riding on a bumpy donkey over very rough terrain in late fall, early winter to be registered. Wow. But this all perfectly fits into God's plan. His sovereignty... Because in Micah 5.2, he says that he has to be born, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Sometimes we have hard, rough, bumpy roads in our life, don't we? And we're like, why, Lord? Why you bring me down this road? But there's a purpose. You see that in Christ. I mean, couldn't it have been easier? Couldn't he have just been born in Nazareth at St. James there? You know? No. No, he had to, there was difficulties, difficulties. Verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now this is interesting because it was not a Roman stipulation that you had to go to the uh, city of your ancestors. They would have been very happy just to have people register in their own town. They would have been happy to have them register right in Nazareth. That's the Romans' point of view. So, we, so we've asked, well, why is it? I think it's a Jewish stipulation. So you've got to remember, Jews had a high nationality, right? Nationalism was strong. And if you think about it, the children of Israel came to the land of it. Remember when they came to the land of Canaan? The whole land was divided into sections, and tribes were given sections, and families were given areas among those uh, sections and each had their own section and I think it was Jewish nationalism even though they're under the thumb the boot of Rome I think they were the ones that asked could, could they go back to their their ancestral territory I think that was what was driving this and most likely the Jews appeal was granted and that's why in this area they had to go back. They couldn't just register where they were. They had to go back to Bethlehem. Again, this was, a critical, this was critical because God had determined that his son would be born in Bethlehem. Micah, you might want to write this 5-2. I'm going to refer to it one more time. I'm actually going to read it in a moment. But Micah 5-2 is absolutely critical in this. Again, Caesar made the decree earlier, but apparently the Jews and Herod and everything, they had resisted. I just say this. It's amazing how God orchestrates and controls everything. 
And I can say it from the pulpit, and I just got to remember it on Monday morning. Because you get on news and you say, what is going on? And you know what? We've got to go back to that truth. God orchestrates and controls everything. And we are, I believe, living, you know, right at the last days. And so much of Revelation is just un- uh, is going to be unfolding. And we just have to keep confidence that God orchestrates and controls everything. God uses those who know him and those who do not know him. He uses the willing and the unwilling. God brought together all the components of the birth of Messiah, i.e. the right time, in the right place, with the right person. God moved in the mind of a godless pagan Caesar who knew nothing about the Old Testament, nothing about the coming Messiah, nothing about God whatsoever. And yet he used him in a marvelous way. He was in every sense a pagan, and yet he played a critical role in the fulfillment of the prophecy at the birth of the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's say that, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's like Proverbs chapter 21 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he what? Turns it wherever he wills. See, God controls the hearts of Caesars and chancellors and kings and dictators and even presidents. Yep. God orchestrates and controls everything. And, and, and we have just got to, again, keep going back to that foundational truth, that, that rock-solid truth that, yes, you are in control. That's, that's the world setting right there. Let's go to the national setting. Joseph also went up. By the way, this is a forced journey. We've already seen that. Second part of verse 4. From Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, a, he was of the house and lineage of David. See, go back to ancestors. Ancestral land. Now again, I want you to mark this. Luke gives us the context. They had to go from Galilee and Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem. As I've said, 70, 80 miles. And it says that he went up. He was uh, in a different passage. Because from where they were, Jerusalem and Bethlehem was just a few miles from Jerusalem, was up. That's why they always say Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. Literally, it was up. It was 2,500, I guess, 64 feet above sea level. Way up. And when you go there, like when you see Jericho, like if you ever go to Israel, and let's say Jericho, the different city, but Jericho, and then you, know, you make your way up that winding road to Jerusalem, you're going up. So again, they had to make the journey. It was a forced journey. What? To fulfill a prophecy to the city of David. Luke clearly tells us that Bethlehem was the town of David. Now, let me read Micah 5.2. I've been telling you about this. It says this in Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, I say that because he identifies there's two Bethlehems in Israel. That's the one he's talking about. Again, Micah 5, 2. Though you are little, i.e. insignificant, you're just a little town. You're just a little town. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. It's out of you. You're going to be the one that's going to see the birth of the one that's going to rule Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the king of kings. He had to be born. If he was born in Nazareth, we're damned in our sins. Because it means he's not the ruler. He is not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. 
Again, the ruler cannot be David. And I'll, this is why, because David was born. Now, right here, Micah was uh, prophesied right here, 700. David was born 300 years earlier. Couldn't be David. And our Lord is born 700 years after this prophecy. And you say, well, how do you know for sure that it was, it's Jesus? Because look at the last part of Micah 5, 2. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. He's the eternal one. The son of the highest. God's son. In fact, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 1. You want to make sure, if you don't have that particular one, either memorize or at least know where it's at, know where it's at. It shows that Jesus Christ is the Word with God, was God, is God. He's God. Second person of the Trinity. So again, he is prophesied 700 years earlier that the, the birth of Christ, the eternal one, would be in Bethlehem. It was therefore imperative, Joseph and Mary, take that long trip to be registered. Why? So that he would be born there. He had to be born there. And then it says in the city of David. But, he, but Luke specifies called Bethlehem. Because actually the city of David was many times referred to as the lower part of Jerusalem. That was called the city of David. You'll see in the scripture the city of David. They're referring to the lower part of Jerusalem. But also city of David also referred to the birthplace of David. And that's what, that's what Paul, or Paul, Luke is talking about here. He's, and he specifies it. I mean, I love, I love Luke because he's a doctor. He's real, you know, he's real meticulous. He gives you all the details you need to know. By the way, that's the great thing about Scripture. They give you the details you need to know and leave out the details you don't need to know. There's a lot about the Christmas story you don't even know. All right? A lot of trappings. So we, we see the fulfilled prophecy there. And then finally, an obedient servant. Messiah was a son of David and was to be born in the city of David. Look at verse 5. Joseph, to be registered with Mary, his his betrothed wife, who was with child. This is the obedient servant. The obedient. Again, was some have said, well, was Mary Joseph's betrothed wife or married wife? Because again, because, you know, it says betrothed there. And that's kind of curious. Why don't you just call him his, his wife? Well, because Matthew, again, Matthew in 124, you can just write it down, says that Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. It was before they even went on the journey, he took to him his wife, Mary, but again, he kept her uh, a virgin. So I think that's why, that's why Luke refers to him, her as the betrothed wife. In other words... Intimacy had not been consummated. So again, the reason Luke says his betrothed wife was though the ceremony had taken place, they were conducting themselves as though they were betrothed. In other words, a legal binding contract before the marriage. That's how they were conducting themselves. The consummation did not take place till after the birth of Jesus. To fulfill Matthew 123, which says this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. So he was treating her like betrothed, though they were actually married at the, at the time of the travel to Bethlehem. 
Now again, this is another question. Why did she have to go? Well, obviously we know from God's perspective that you know, she had to go because Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. But really, usually it was just the male that had to register. I mean, it wasn't the female. Just, you know, the guy could travel and register and come back home type of thing. I, I like how one person wrote, he said, well, we should perhaps reflect that it was a combination of the, of the decree by the emperor in a distant Rome and the gossiping tongues of Nazareth that brought Mary to Bethlehem <coughs> at just the time to fulfill the prophecy about the per- birthplace of Christ. Yeah, it's the gossiping tongues. <laughs> I think it was both. The decree, but I don't think the decree demanded that the woman be there. But, but now we have the gossiping tongues. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she says that she got you know, pregnant by the, the angels. I mean, really? I mean, if, you're, if your girl came and said, well, it wasn't a guy. Or, back in that day, purity was, impurity was definitely frowned upon more than our day and age. So it was probably the wagging tongues that also drove her to stay with him during her final days before she gave birth. Let's face it, 13, 14-year-old, parents didn't even understand, perhaps. So, we don't know. The only point is this. Yeah, there I'm speculating, but I will say this. God orchestrates and controls everything. And in your life, you may feel like some things are out of control, but God orchestrates and controls everything. We've got to hang on to that. That's got to be the controlling factor in our life. It gives us peace and confidence, right? In the, in the midst of chaos. So we looked at the national, we've looked at the, uh, I mean the world, we've looked at the national setting. Now let's look finally at the personal setting. The personal setting of Christ's birth. And this is verses 6 and 7. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. We'll leave it right there at the moment. Again, there's a lot of non-specifics of the birth. Very few details are given. Just the fact that he was brought forth. I mean, like a detail like this. Let me give you a couple. How long were they in Bethlehem? Was it a day? Was it three days? Was it ten days? Did they just arrive? Was it, were they there, a, uh, not a month, but I mean, a few more days in a, you know, a couple weeks? We don't know. And where exactly were they? Now, we know that there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, Constantine's mother, 300 years later, said that she, that she delivered in a cave. That's why, like if you go on a Jerusalem trip, you'll go into a cave and they'll say, this is right where Jesus was born. Well, I, I don't see it in Scripture. <laughs> we don't really know. Just that We just know this. There was no fanfare. There wasn't even room for him in an inn. See, sometimes God's servants get frustrated because we're not exalted and respected. There was no room for him in the end. I was, we were talking about uh, in ABF downstairs, a, Paul refers to himself as just a clay pot. Just an under-rower. I think for Christians, we need to get the right mentality. Our Lord was born in an area, not even enough room in an inn. There was no prestige and fanfare. You're not going to get it on this, in this world. There's a day of fanfare coming. It's called the Bema. It's called the, the, the Supper of the Lamb. But not right now. But let's look at a few of the specifics that are here. There are a few things. She brought forth her firstborn. 
That's very, very important. She did not use, they did not use, Luke did not use the word homogeneous. Homogeneous would be only son. Use the word prototokon. The point is, is this, the first of many. Because we find out that Mary and Joseph, after this, had normal relations, and, G, and Joseph had a number of brothers and sisters. He's just, but he was the first of all those. Now that's very important, because it was the first that inherited the inheritance. Okay, And for him, what was the inheritance? David's throne. That's very, very first. David's throne. Now again, let's go back to this virgin conception because this is absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical because in 2 Chronicles 36, there's a name, there's a king, Jehoiakim. And because of his wickedness, God said, none of your relatives will ever sit on the throne of David. There was a curse on that king. He was then brought off to, uh, uh, he was captured and brought off to Babylon in, I think, 597. Hey, this presents a problem. Jesus is in the line. How does he get around his, that personal curse? Virgin birth. Virgin birth not only creates, uh, as far as original sin not being transferred to Christ, he's the perfect lamb of God, but also the curse does not apply because though Mary is the mother, Joseph is, like as it were, the adopted father. He adopts, but, he, but he, his blood is not, is not uh, flowing through Jesus' veins. So as one man write, writes on the virgin conception, no other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin birth. The virgin birth, the virgin conception, must have happened exactly the way Scripture says. Otherwise, Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is simply the illegitimate child, uh, child of birth of Mary's infidelity, or even if he is the child of Joseph's natural marital union with Mary, he is not God. And if he is not God, his claims are a lie. And if his claims are a lie, his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a, a hoax, we are all damned. I say this. The virgin birth is a hill worth dying for. Dying on. No, defend the virgin birth. But again, he was the firstborn, therefore he had the right to the inheritance. That's the first part we see in verse uh, 7. About the second, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. I mean, he was a normal baby by every standard of, of, of uh, every standard. No royal robes, no fancy clothes, like I said earlier, no halo around the head. <laughs> you look at him, he's a baby. By the way, did babies need changing? Did Jesus need changing? Yeah. yeah. So he's a normal baby. And bear, by the way, Mary treated uh, Jesus as, a, as any other mother would treat a normal baby. And the custom was to take long strips, wrap them in swaddling clothes, and they would wrap the arms, and they would wrap the legs, and they would, and they would, and there was a, and then wrap the body, the torso, and created comfort. It created security. By the way, they also thought that by doing that, it would keep their arms straight. The bones would would uh, would form properly. I don't know. Did they look like this? I'm not sure. Definitely keep them warm. And laid them in a manger. That just calls about the humility, right? Humble birth. Manger was just a feeding trough. It doesn't say, by the way, that Jesus was born in a stable. Or as tradition says, that he was born in a cave. It only says that he was laid in a manger. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, 
you know, if you go to a hotel and you, you know, you look out your hotel window, you see a parking lot. Well, back then, if you're in the inn, you look outside, and instead of a parking lot, you have all these animals. They're not like a stable, they're just an open field, and, and most likely she gave birth amongst the animal, not even with a roof. And the only reason we see the manger, the feeding trough, was because that's where the animals were. Right, let's move along, Bessie. We've got to give birth to this baby. I mean, talk about humble circumstance. Because there was no room in the inn. Some have said that inn, you could uh, think of it like a shelter or a guest house or a campground or a lodge. That's the inn. There was no room in there. In other words, the world wasn't expecting the king to be born like that. By the way, would you have planned it like that? I mean, you think about God. In, in his, no, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. No, no, we're going to have fanfare. Everyone's going to know who this baby is. He's my son, the only begotten son. Nope, God send him, born, wrapped, laid in a manger. Let me close with this. When Jesus came to the world, he was born in the most comfortless conditions, smelly, filthy, chilly area. But this is the wonder of grace, isn't it? When God came down, he came all the way down. He thought his equality with God, not something to be held on to, but he gave it up and humbled himself, like Philippians 2 talks about. All the way down. Not just to a stinking animals and pen, but to become a substitute for stinking sinners. That's us. And to bear the stench of our guilt in his body on the tree, like 1 Peter 2 says. He came down to the poor and the lowly and the humble and the base and the wicked. He came down to the common people to bring his glorious salvation to them. It was fitting, in a sense, then, that he was born in a stinking, smelly little area like that, just beside the inn, probably. Because that's what smelled far worse to the nostrils of God than any odor of animals is the odor of sinners. He sent the Savior all the way down into the lives of the lowly, and the whole picture of that scene is an image of the stench of sin which Jesus bore in his own body on the cross. John, 1 writes, John writes this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You know, he came for sinners. came all the way down to bear in his own body the wretched, wicked sin that belonged to them. And they didn't even receive him. Talking to the Jews. But this is the, this is the, 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 the verse of hope in John 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Our sin is a stench, a filthy stench, as it were, in the nostrils of God. We need a Savior. He will save his people from their sins. Has he saved you? He went to the cross. His sacrifice is sufficient. But as the scripture says, you have to receive him. You have to recognize the stench of your own sin. That your righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. That we can do nothing to please the Holy Father. But that Christ did everything to please the Father. He went to the cross. He died for your sin. And now he's reaching out and saying, receive me. Receive my sacrifice on your behalf. Don't try to work. For salvation, 
It's by grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift. Reach out and receive what I have done on your behalf. Because I have done it all. In fact, at the end of the, at the end of, uh, just before he died, what did he say? It is finished. It is complete. Salvation is complete. And what mankind needs to do is, as individuals, turn to the only one that can save them, Jesus Christ. The perfect Lamb of God, dying for our sins on the cross, and to and receive him. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior. Have you done that? And if you have done that, if you haven't, by the way, you can receive him right where you are. Right? You can call out, Lord, I am a filthy, wretched sinner. I deserve damnation, but I see that salvation is only in you. I cry out for your salvation. I receive you. God will accept that. God, because your sin has been placed on, the, on, on, the, on Christ on the cross. But if you're here and you are a Christian, I trust that your, your joy, your love, your hope, your admiration for Jesus Christ just keeps rising. And that through this Christmas season, we really will put Christ at the very center of everything we do. Whether it's the prayer we uh, pray before uh, that we eat, <laughs> uh, whether it's when we're talking to people, we're enjoying the 25th or even the day after, whatever it is, that our hearts would be drawn to him. Because without him, nothing... Of, that, this is all just trappings compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to give glory to him, Right? I, I trust that that really is your heart attitude and that will be your, your actions of your life. That we could watch each one of us and we would say, you know what's most important to them? Not the gifts, not the food, not the, not the eggnog. I love the eggnog. Um, Jesus Christ. That's the center of that guy's life. That's the center of that woman's life. That's the center of that teen's life. Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we worship him.